0: man you can turn your bibles to Matthew chapter 28 last week we dealt with under the 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 heading of honor we're dealing with honor honoring god god's authority and so Related to that, we dealt with the nature of an ultimate authority, and we're going to come back and and deal more with that. But this morning, I want to deal with a similar thought, and that is authority in relationship to evangelism. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 28 and then go to 1 Peter chapter 3. But you can start in verse 16 of chapter 28. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But look at this. But some doubted. That's why. Some of those that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection doubted. That's not necessarily in relation to what we're saying this morning, but think about that in lines of using an evidentialist approach to evangelism. (laughs) In verse 18 it says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the son and of the holy ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever i have commanded you and lo i am with you always even unto the end of the world amen and then turn over to a companion scripture in first peter chapter 3 In verse 15, this verse has been referred to as the Magna Carta of apologetics, and it reads, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Father, we do bow with our hearts before your throne this morning, Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would anoint, Father, both to speak, articulate, and to hear and apply. Father, we ask you, Lord, to reveal yourself and your ways unto us here this morning. Lord, accomplish your purpose in every heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when one considers the passages of Scripture which deal with evangelism, I would say that these which we have read here this morning would be two of the primary texts, if not the two primary texts that would come to mind. Matthew 28, 1 Peter 3 and 15. But I would propose to you this morning that few people have a conscious and full understanding of these passages. In fact, I believe that some in here this morning will be enlightened as we consider the foundational element of these passages. Now we read in Matthew 28 and we have what has been referred to as the Great Commission. But as evangelists, when we state the Great Commission, we are tempted to start with, go ye therefore into all the world, aren't we? But we emphasize that go. But before we go, we must understand what the therefore is therefore. And perhaps you may intrinsically know this, but Sadly, to my shame, until somebody pointed that out, I never really seriously considered what the therefore was there for. And that is significant because according to this passage, our going is dependent on what Jesus said prior to the commandment to go. To those of you that have not heard me preach this message at Brother Josh's, what is the therefore referring to? Anybody? Previous words. Well, previous words, but what, 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 don't look without looking. Now, this is not an open book test here, Brother Kevin. <laughs> what were those previous words? You see, "Well, I mean that really that 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 hit home to me. <laughs> it was kind of like the first time a a man asked me as a preacher to name him the Ten Commandments in order, and I couldn't do it. I thought, what am I doing?" You see, the all-important therefore of verse 19 is indeed most significant, for it reveals the essential foundation, source, and strength of all successful evangelism, yea, and I would add, all of life as well. What is the antecedent of therefore? What did he say prior? He said, all power or authority is given to me in heaven and upon earth. Therefore, you go into all the world and preach the gospel. What about 1 Peter 3 and 15? What is the primary instruction that God through Peter gives to us in that passage? We're apt to think that I need to always be ready, amen, to have an answer. But that's not the primary thrust in this passage either. The first thing he says is sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That is primary. And then after you've done that, you will be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Do you see that? The primary aspect of defending the faith is not being ready or willing or even equipped. The primary aspect is not intellectual. The primary emphasis in this passage is pertaining to a right posture of heart, which is secured by the personal setting apart of Jesus as the Lord of our lives. You see, the beginning of this verse is a command to sanctify Christ so that we will fulfill the end of this verse. You you ever hear this verse in another version of the Bible? You you know what the last words say? That we are to do this with, I see you smiling over here, with with what, Samuel? With gentleness and respect. Isn't that so sweet? You see, gentleness and respect is man-centered. Okay? God didn't say gentleness. He said meekness and fear. That's God-centered. You know, most people think, I need to be gentle to the little sinner and I need to respect him. Now, We do need to respect them as creatures in the image of God. Amen. You hear me? But that's humanistic. When I sanctify Christ as Lord, then I'm going to be meek, which is seeking to be under his lordship, whether that's encouraging them or whether that's giving them a very stern, plain rebuke. I just, God, what do you want me to say? And I'm not here trying to keep from offending them and to respect them, but I am doing this in the fear of the Lord, understanding that I'm seeking to please Him and represent Him above all else. Do you see that governing posture And only then are we going to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And you know what? I'm seeing something here that I've never seen. Do you know what the reason is for the hope that's in me? It's not some kind of a fancy argument. The reason of the hope is because of the absolute certainty of this book right here. That's the reason. Because this is God's word, and he cannot lie. And that's the reason I believe this. Oh, isn't that beautiful? I love that. You see, we need to have a right view of evangelism. So what's the primary truth that God is communicating to us in these two passages? Go, be ready. No. Should we go? Yes. Should we be ready? Absolutely. But the primary thing that he's communicating to us is the Lordship of Jesus Christ must be the source and foundation of our evangelism if we are to fulfill the Great Commission. And it is impossible to overstate the importance of this truth. Moreover, it's impossible to understand and walk in this truth apart from divine revelation and grace. You see, as evangelists, our message to the lost is this. Jesus Christ is king. That's our message. But this truth must not merely be our message to the world. It must first be a conscious reality in our lives. And the application of this truth is far-reaching. Now, I understand that that statement, Jesus Christ is Lord and the Lordship of Christ must govern our analogy, or our evangelism. You may think, well, that's kind of a self-evident, obvious tautology, Brother Charlie. But I would propose to you that few people in this hour truly understand the essential and practical application of that truth in their lives, and fewer actually walk in the fullness thereof. Thus, we learn here that if one does not intentionally esteem and abide in this truth, of the lordship of Christ, they cannot rightly represent Christ. And so this morning, we are going to consider the practical aspects, or one practical aspect, of setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts regarding evangelism. Now, when one truly understands that authority is the ultimate issue of life, it will revolutionize their Christianity and practically affect their evangelism. But in order to understand the essence of mankind's predicament, you see, we're, we're going out as evangelists, seeking to evangelize men. But, but what is their predicament? Well, to know that, we've got to go back to the fall and ask ourselves this question. What actually was the first sin which Eve committed. And I would propose to you this morning that the initial and root sin of Eve's fall was not the physical act of biting into that fruit, but the prior inward abandoning of God as her ultimate authority. You see, what we need to understand is this, saints. Satan didn't tempt Eve to become an atheist or a ranked sinner. Moreover, Satan's initial solicitation was not to commit some act, but first to doubt God and abandon the authority of God in his revealed word. That's because Satan knew If he could just get Eve to come out from under God's authority in her heart, it was all over with. Now, we need to consider the significance of why Satan attacked Eve and not Adam first. You see, Eve did not directly receive the commandment to not eat from the tree, from God, but from her earthly authority. The Bible says in Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. So Eve was not given the commandment directly from God, but from her ordained earthly authority who communicated the commandment to her. And we can look at that in two ways, amen? God's authority is mediated to us, not directly from him, but through his word, which is from him, and then applied by our earthly authority. So in tempting Eve in this way, we can relate to that temptation. You see, Eve indeed transgressed in eating the fruit. But for Eve, the actual eating of the fruit was merely the result of her prior sinful choice to inwardly remove herself from God's authority, thus making herself the ultimate authority. And her ensuing deception and all the pain the world has ever suffered was because of this inward, wretched shift of ultimate authority. But I believe before that moment that everything was wonderful for Eve, and I'm sure you would agree. Never has a woman on the earth been more blessed and blissful and as whole as Eve at that moment before she was tempted. But we may ask ourselves this morning, what was the primary reason and source of her blessed and blissful state? Eve had a proper relationship with God. How was that? By maintaining a proper relationship with God's word and her earthly authority. And because of that, Her right relationship with God, his word, her authority, through that flowed. That was the source of all of her blessedness and bliss. You see, Eve was abiding in her rightful place as a human being. She was unquestionably, or could we say presuppositionally, submitted to God as her source and standard of right and wrong, good and evil, truth and falsehood. I do not believe that she ever even considered that God may be wrong or unjust. I do not believe she ever went around the trees before that point and sat down in the grass and pondered why the tree of life was suitable and the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was forbidden. You see, God had defined her reality through his word given to her by her husband. God was her authority. And imagine this. She just received his word as truth. And that is the proper posture of heart for every creature. Creature. And when Satan approached her, her thought process should have been this. God created me and this world. Therefore, he's my authority. Besides that, he's never lied to me or given me any reason to question his love for me. Therefore, why would I even consider for one moment judging the truthfulness or reasonableness of what he has said? Question God? Determined by myself? independently from God and his word, what's good and evil, what's true and false, what is prudent and unwise. Are you kidding me, Mr. Snake? That's what she should have done. You see, in philosophy, there is what is known as ontology, and then there is such a thing as epistemology. You see, ontology deals with what we know to be the state of things. Epistemology deals with how we know. Now, what is foundational to the other? Is epistemology prior to or foundational to ontology? Or is ontology prior and foundational to epistemology? What should we consider first? How do we know or what do we know? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate your willingness there, brother. <laughs> you see, how we know must be informed by what we know. What, what do we know? What, what do all people intrinsically know? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Thus, <laughs> that is why we must first sanctify him as Lord in our hearts. You see, the one thing that all men know, it's set forth in Romans chapter 1. All men know that God is God, and they're not, okay? And and if we then take in, okay, this is what I know, so if he is God, then I need to go to God to find out how I am to determine what is true in the world. Do you see that? What I know, he is Lord, determines my methodology of then seeking truth and knowledge. This is what happened to Eve. She did not first consider what she knew. God has created me. He he is my... She didn't think about that, but rather set that governing truth aside and then sought to have an epistemological thought experiment. In other words, she said, well, I'll just go over to the episteme bin and I'll just choose out an episteme here and then we'll just have a little experiment here and, and I will... Analyze my two options, what Satan has said and what God has said. And I will then use my own senses and reason to decide which one is wiser. And this is what Satan seeks to do to us, not only in regards to evangelism, but in life as well. He wants to do what he did to Eve lure us onto so-called neutral ground. Now, what we must understand is this. Neutrality is a myth. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. There is no neutrality. There is no neutral ground. Satan deceived Eve to abandon her proper place as God's creature which was one of humble and content, unquestioned submission to his authority and to sinfully assume the posture of God's judge. You see, Eve in essence assumed epitome. She became a scientist as she set aside the truth that God had revealed to her ontology, what she knew. She, she set that aside. And she then sinfully employed her senses and reason to put God on trial as she weighed the validity of what God had said over against what Satan had said. You see, the one thing that all men intrinsically know is that God exists And he is the supreme authority. You see, the devil, he he wants to make this whole thing, you know, the main question is trying to prove to people that God exists. You know, that that, that faith just just involves, you know, whether or not I believe God exists. (laughs) Everyone knows God exists. You don't need faith to know God exists. You need faith to submit yourself to God's authority. That's the real issue here. You see that? And that's what God has primarily revealed to all men. What does he say? The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. What exactly? Even his eternal power and godhead so that they are without excuse that doesn't you know the, the, the primary mean it doesn't mean that you know god through nature has revealed the trinity to all sinners so they can they, 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 that's not what that's saying can we learn things about god and the creation absolutely but that saying he's revealed to all men that he is divine. He is God. He is the supreme ruler of the world. That's the one thing that all men know. And the Christian merely lives by faith, which is according to that reality. But unbelievers who have been divinely granted that revelation and rebelled against it, they've arrived at a different ultimate presupposition. You see, the main presupposition of the Christian is this. The triune Christian God exists. He is my Lord, and His Word is truth. But the primary presupposition of the unbeliever is this. Man is the measure of all things. And his senses and reason are sufficient to lead him into all truth. And we could simplify these two ultimate presuppositions even further and say the ultimate Christian position is Jesus is Lord of all. Whereas the unbeliever, whether pagan or religious, his presupposition is Jesus is not Lord of all. What we must understand is this. This is key. The unbeliever has not come to his position that man is supreme by an unbiased and sincere inquiry into truth, but by a willful rejection of the obvious existence and rights. And all of his beliefs are in essence his vain attempt to construct an alternative to accommodate his rebellion. Well, what's the metaphysic of the atheist, typically, Timothy? He's a... No, 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 his metaphysic, his view of reality. What is it? He's a... That's his epist- episteme there. His metaphysic is he would be a a naturalist, a materialist. The world is just, just matter in motion okay but but hear me he is not a pure naturalist he's really an anti supernaturalist. you understand uh, he has revelation of the supernatural, but he rejects that reality not because it's illogical but because of the moral ramifications and so as he turns from that i 've got to come up with an alternative so it becomes. A naturalist. Do you see that? <laughs> the atheist, he He's an anti-creationist. Do you see that? He's not really an empiricist or a rationalist. He's an anti-revelationalist. He's not really an atheist. He's an anti-theist. Do you see that? He knows God as God. That's the first thing. That's the main thing that he knows. But he would not glorify God as God. So he turns his back on the light. And now he's got to come up with an alternate explanation as to how all this happened. And that's not an easy thing to do. You understand? In other words, fallen man is not committed to science, logic, or philanthropy, but to his godhood. And why is this truth so significant? Because if this is the essence of fallen man's problem, then the confrontation of this governing posture of heart is an essential aspect. Of evangelism. Do you see? If that's the essence of the fall, of the condition of the sinner that is evangelist, we've got to focus in on that right there. And when one understands this truth, they'll not use evidential apologetics. Because evidential apologetics, what is it? It validates and appeals to the fallen man's rebellion, which is his autonomy. Now I'm not against using evidence, okay, under the umbrella of presuppositional apologetics in which we presuppose God and sanctify him as Lord. But when we just think we're just gonna give him evidence, we're offering evidence to him as the judge saying that, you know, you can do what you've always done to figure this out. Just use your own mind and your own reason and I'll give you some good evidence and you can figure this out. We're appealing to the very thing that is his main problem and which he must repent of. You see, when one gives the unbeliever evidence for God, They're basically proposing the same thought experiment Satan proposed to Eve, but from a different angle. (laughs) You see, Eve, she was unfallen. And so Satan was saying, Eve, come on over here to neutral ground. But what the evidentialist does is from so-called neutral ground, he appeals to the fallen man saying, hey, come back (laughs) to so-called neutral ground and let's discuss this. Do you see? Was there any neutral ground in the garden? Was there? Neither is there any neutral ground on the college campus. (laughs) There's not a square, nano, millimeter in all of creation that God does not look at and say, mine. Now, there's no neutral ground. But there is some common ground, amen, in which they were created in the image of God. So we must not appeal to their autonomy, but we must rather benevolently (laughs) show them how wicked and foolish their autonomy is. That's what we're here to do, amen. (laughs) We're not going out there to, you know, please, Mr. Sinner. You know, if you would just hear my God hypothesis, and you would just be hoping to consider these facts and this evidence that I have, then I could prove to you that a God really does exist. That's not what biblical evangelism is. Biblical evangelism is sanctifying Christ as Lord. And when somebody does that, then they really believe what God has said in His Word. Did God ever seek to prove His existence in His Word? Where's the proof of the existence of God in the Word of God? Where is it? It's not there. You see, we need to learn what God is teaching us through that right there. The existence of God is presupposed. For in the beginning, God, this is obvious. you understand? I mean, you've got to be an absolute fool to deny the existence of God. His existence is the most obvious thing in the universe. And when we sanctify Christ as Lord, we believe that. And then when we go forth and evangelize, in the light of that truth, that informs how we are going to address the sinner or the unbeliever. You see, as we've learned, sinners are not victims, but go. Unbelievers aren't good people who need better information. <laughs> They're not needers of knowledge. They're haters of the knowledge of God. And the reason the sinner rages when someone preaches the gospel is not because he's sincerely concerned about the local decibel ordinance. <laughs> no, no. Because he's a rebel against God. And through the preaching of the word, God's authority, which he knows about in his heart, is being applied to him in a personal way. Yes, Thus, we understand that the modern approach... To evangelism is an outright violation of the first principle of evangelism, which is to sanctify Christ as Lord, because the Lord says the problem is a willful suppression of the truth, which is rebellion. As I close here this morning, we consider in a court of law, who is the evidence given to? And the jury. You see that? So when we go out and give the sinner evidence, we are becoming an accomplice in perhaps the greatest sin in the universe. We are ordaining them as the judge and the jury. And we are siding with them, allowing them to put God on trial. But we're doing our good deed because free of charge, you know, we're going to help God out here and become his defense attorney. We're going to defend him in this trial. But here's the issue. Even if the trial does end in God's acquittal, we have still been guilty of the greatest atrocity because we have allowed the sinner to put God on trial. Let's stand here this morning. You see, as one man so eloquently said, the ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles, however, are reversed. For now man is the judge and God is in the dock. However, man can sometimes be a quite kindly judge. And if God should have a reasonable defense for his being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Do you see the importance of sanctifying Christ as Lord And never abandoning that, never being ashamed of that, but dealing with men according to God's testimony of what they are and what they know. Father, we thank you. Lord, for truth. Lord, you've been so gracious unto us. Father, help each of us, Father, to see, Lord, the reality, the truth, Lord, the importance of this great fact. And align our hearts and our lives accordingly. We thank you, Father, to do that. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you. We'll take a short break and come back for church.